Hello, awesome. Well, welcome. Wow, God is good. <laughs> so, um, I guess I should say this because we have some new faces today, and uh, and just to give you some context, we we're in the middle of a series. And the series is going kind of long just because there's a lot to talk about. And so if you don't know, um, what we've been talking about is uh, basically the importance of adopting an eternal perspective. And I started this series January 3rd, and uh, you know, I, I told you all along, I don't know how long we're going to go on this. I knew it'd probably be a long time because there's so much, and it's such a critical message um, and, and unfortunately, it's a message that I feel is quite neglected. I, generally speaking, and I, I should say that, uh, when I say things like that, it's generally. Of course, there's churches here and there who are talking about it. Um, but in my experience, just at least what I've been exposed to, not talked about very often. And part of that reason is because there's some challenging things that come along when you talk about eternal perspective, particularly uh, when you talk about eternal judgments and so forth. And so um, wanted to, the Lord, I really felt like the Lord wanted me to do this and to, you know, give a whole series on it. And so I want to, uh, for those of you, especially if you're new, because we put the pause button on this series, just that one message I told you about when we talked about the Holy Spirit evangelism and, and then Tricia spoke last week. And so just to, you know, get us back to uh, the foundation of, of what I've talked, what I'm talking about, really wanted to uh, start off with this verse. And uh, this is from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. And I often start some of these messages with this verse to show you how critical this is. And it's, it's in my opinion, it's quite unfortunate that it gets neglected. And you'll see why when I read this. So this is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. The elementary teachings. Elementary school, Right? And be taken forward to maturity. So these teachings are critical in order to mature in Christ, to fully mature. Okay? Not laying again the foundation. So these are the foundation. Foundation, right? These are the things that we should be building off of. And if you're found, we all know if you have a foundation that isn't solid, what's going to happen? Right? It's not going to be good. And Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 7. The foolish man who builds his house on the sand, right? And so we want to make sure we're building our faith on the, a solid foundation. So this is, so he talks about this, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, of, uh, oh, sorry, instruction about cleansing rites, other versions say baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, right? So, I have that highlighted because, of course, that's what I've been talking about. And I just want to say that, you know, tragic that we're not hearing about, like, who even talks about the laying on of hands besides Randy Clark? You know, like, these are foundational teachings of Jesus Christ. And so that's why, you know, I saw fit and I really felt like the Lord wanted us to really just build this foundation and talk about this for a while, and really get a, a good understanding of these things, even though sometimes it's challenging to talk about. Now, I have the message version of this just because I think it's kind of fun. So come on, let's, let's leave the preschool fang, finger painting exercises on Christ 
and get on with the grand work of art. Grow up in Christ. The basic foundation truths are in place. Turning your back on salvation by self-help. Come on now. I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And turning and trust toward God. Baptismal instructions, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, like I said, uh, foundational. I just want you to understand that's why we're talking about this for so long. And there's so many scriptures and so much teaching in the Bible about this that just gets ignored, essentially. And so we're really just hitting on those scriptures to, to get a solid foundation in this stuff. Um, this is kind of an intimidating verse from Hebrews 9.27. It says this, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Whoa. So this is something we all have to face. And if you were here when I started this series back in January, I was talking about how uh, back the first two messages, I really uh, emphasized eternity right? Like, what does that even mean? How we live now is going to influence how we live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it's something we all have to face. So the, the, why I keep saying it's tragic we don't talk about this is because there's going to be a lot of people who stand before the Lord one day, and they're going to be shocked, right? We've talked about this before. They're going to be totally shocked at how God assesses their life, because they haven't even thought about these things. Like I give the analogy, how much time do we devote to planning for retirement, right? We plan years and decades usually to plan for like, you know, 15, 20 years. Why aren't we doing the same amount of, of planning, if not hopefully more, for eternity? Because how we live now is going to impact how we, we can't even fathom forever, right? So it's just a reality that we have to deal with. Now, the last few weeks... Um, talked about some really uh, in, uh, difficult messages on, on the side of eternal judgment and punishment. So we talked about hell, right? That's something no one wants to talk about. Talked about the judgment, not only of unbelievers, but of, of, of uh, people who are deceived, right? We talked about believers falling away. So really difficult stuff. Now, one thing I want to show you is hard for us on this side of eternity to understand these difficult things, and so you see it's really popular these days for people to try and rationalize these things away and say God doesn't judge anymore when it's clear that he does. But what I wanted to do is show you what's, so what's heaven's perspective on judgment, okay? And I just want to show you a couple of interesting verses. Now, the first one I want to show you is from Revelation chapter 16. Now, to give you context, this is in the midst of the most intense judgments in the book of Revelation. So there's the seals, there's the seven trumpets, then there's the seven bowls of wrath. This is in the midst of the seven bowls of wrath. Okay, so the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood, right? Just like, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Talking about Moses now. Then I heard an angel in charge of the water say, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who were are who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, talking about the altar in heaven. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. They're worshiping God in the midst of this, saying, yes, you're holy and true. This is what they deserve because they shed the blood of your innocent people. Right? And, and that's what's hard for us to understand 
is okay, right? God, why does he judge? But it's because we've lived in such an amazing country that hasn't experienced horrendous things for the most part. Okay, like we've we we get a glimpse of it on the news of what's happening with ISIS. Right. And what are they doing? They're doing horrendous things to Christians. They're torturing Christians. Right. They're selling women into the sex industry. Things we can't even fathom. Imagine that happened to your loved one. Okay, Whatever your eschatology is, um, you know, a lot of people believe there's going to be Antichrist figure. The end times. He's going to be Hitler on steroids. What happened on V-Day? The world was rejoicing, right? That the war, that the war was over. That that the ju- right the justice prevailed, truth prevailed. Right? We wanted justice for somebody who was killing millions of people in unrighteousness. That's, think about, so this is them rejoicing in God, releasing justice in the midst of horrendous, unspeakable evil. So you have to understand that. Why are people worshiping God? Because it's in a context that's hard for us to understand. And unless you're in the midst of that, then it, it is hard to understand. And that's why I want to say this. Look at the next verse. Now, there's a lot of text. You can just listen because you probably can't read that. This is Revelation 19, 1 and 9. This is after all of the wrath. This is after every judgment, after the seven bowls of wrath. Look at heaven's response. Okay? And after I heard what has sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven. This is heaven now, right? Shouting, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. How many worship songs say this in contemporary worship, right? How many people say, hallelujah, you're just in your judgments, God? This is what heaven's songs look like. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Right? Like, whoa, what a worship song. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, and they declared, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters and like loud pearls of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Now look, at this is interesting. The linen stands for the righteous acts of the holy people. <laughs> right? You mention works in church these days and people are like, oh, heretic. This, this is what he's saying. This is good. Righteous acts are a good thing. This is what the bride of Christ will be clothed with, is the righteous acts. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Now, I'm showing you this because I realize how uncomfortable it was to hear about these difficult, challenging messages about eternal judgment. But I wanted to show you a glimpse if you can somehow shift 
how we think about these things and realize, no, in the grand scheme of things, when it's all said and done, we're going to be praising God for his judgments. Because he's, his, he's a just God. And although it's hard to understand right now on this side of eternity, we are going to understand it and be part of this crowd someday saying, hallelujah, amen. Okay? So I just wanted to show you that from heaven's perspective um, because today I'm transitioning. Okay? So we've, we were talking about the side of the equation that's challenging to talk about, eternal punishment. Now, in that, uh, what I wanted to do today is because we're going to go on the other side of things and talk about heaven, okay? But I wanted to not only, uh, I wanted to give you a foundation because inevitably when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, eternal judgments, even on that side of the equation, there is a tangible fear of the Lord that comes. And it's awesome. I want to advertise the fear of the Lord. It might sound funny, but I really do. It's actually a good thing. And if we can shift our perspective on what that is and what that means, then we can have a healthy view of these things and actually understand and grow in intimacy with God in a fuller understanding than we would if we just ignored the fear of the Lord or just tried to say it doesn't exist anymore. Okay, so... I'm going to talk about eternal judgments and the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is key here. We're talking about standing before the Lord one day and being confident. Okay? Without being firmly established in the truth of eternal judgment and punishment, it prevents us from building a proper and healthy life in Christ. You'll notice that Jesus spoke, and this is interesting, he spoke about hell in the Gospels way more than he spoke about heaven. Have you ever thought about that? Why does he do this? I believe part of the reason is it's in order to plant a firm foundation in our hearts of the fear of the Lord. Let me show you a scripture. This is from Luke 12, 2 to 10, and I realize, again, there's a lot of text, so I'll just read it. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's talking about the Lord. This is Jesus talking about the Lord. Fear him. Don't fear man. That's bondage. Fear God. Okay? Are you not, uh, or sorry, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and yet... One of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? People falling away and disowning the Lord. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven 
But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. We talked about two, if you remember that. And if you, if you, don't, if you weren't here, you can get the sermons archives. Just email ottawa.catchthefire.com and we'll email you the MP3s and sermon notes if you'd like. So the key, key point here is attaining and maintaining a good understanding of eternal judgment and punishment firmly plants the fear of the Lord in your heart, our hearts, which keeps us on the path of life. If we lack a conscious understanding of eternal judgments and punishment, we will lack a certain measure of the fear of the Lord. For the judgments of Christ are one aspect of the fear of the Lord. I'm going to show you scripture on this. We've talked about this before, but I want to show you this again in this context to show you that even when we are talking about believers standing before the Lord one day, that there's an element of the fear of the Lord that comes with that. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11. Actually, 9 to 11. That's a mistake there. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all, not just unbelievers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us in the th- for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You know, he's talking to believers here. He's writing to believers. This isn't to unbelievers. Okay, so we're going to have to give an account for everything we do in this life. Since then, look at verse 11. Since this is the case, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. You see that connection? When we talk about the fact that we have to give an account for our lives, for everything we've done when we're in the body, whether good or bad, we're going to stand, all stand before the Lord one day and give an account. This produces the fear of the Lord, and it's a good thing. It keeps us on the path of life. Having that in your mind, and I'm going to talk about this more later. So, so I already said this. We have to give an account for everything we did in this life. Only God, and we know this, only God can give the eternal sentence of hell because he's the only one who knows everything and is able to be just in his judgments And the continual awareness that nothing can be hidden from him keeps us in the fear of the Lord and on the path of life. That's one reason why the fear of the Lord is awesome, right? It's awesome because it helps us us stay on that path of life. And the Lord wants us to. I was going to get ahead of myself. I'll just go on here. Look at the connection. I'll talk about it later. Look at the connection here between the fear of the Lord and salvation, Right? We talked about salvation a few weeks ago. And, and this is Romans eleven twenty to 21. I want to give you, I've talked about verse 22 previously, but I want to give you the context. He's talking about people losing their salvation. He says, quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches... He will not spare you either. This is the key. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. You need both. To those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if, there's a condition, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll also be cut off. Right? That's the key. Fear, the severity. And I have here, this this is the understanding you need to have. It's the radical middle. Okay, right? For you, I should say this since not everyone has been here before. 
to stay on the path of life. I call it the quest for the radical middle. There's two ditches on either side of the path of life. On one side, you got lawlessness. On the other side, you got legalism. And scripturally speaking, both will cut you off from the grace of Christ. In order to stay on the path, you need to understand and have a revelation of God's kindness and his severity. Okay? So I have down here the kindness of God keeps you out of legalism, which is critical. And we've talked about this before, the religious spirit, right? Trying to get the saints into legalism. We have to watch out for that. The devil always tries to put that on us. But the severity of God keeps you out of lawlessness, Okay, another way of saying it, and I have in a brackets, the love of God keeps you out of legalism. The severity of God keeps you out of lawlessness. If you don't have this balanced understanding, it would, it's easy to get into lawlessness. And you see that's the problem if you look scripturally of the end times. It's not legalism, it's lawlessness. So for us to stand firm in these times, we need to have a full understanding of both aspects of God. His kindness and his severity. And I've given this scripture before, but I love it. Because it says, look what it says. This is Psalm 147.11. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Both. See, the, the thing for that's hard for us to understand is how can a loving God also be a severe God? Right? And so it's, just, it's because of our rational way of thinking that it's, we reject we have the tendency to reject things that contradict what we believe. And, and I've talked about this before. So the problem is if you're only emphasizing one facet of God, the love of God, what happens? You tend to rationalize away other scriptures that contradict your understanding. And you see that today. It's rampant. You see people saying God doesn't judge anymore. You know, the fear of the Lord is Old Testament. No way. I just quoted you 2 Corinthians 5.11, fear of the Lord. <laughs> There's so many times, in the, and you'll see scriptures today, the fear of the Lord is a new covenant reality. And if we could shift our understanding and realize how awesome it is, right, then we won't fall into the trap of trying to rationalize these things away. Rather than that, embrace them fully so that we can grow in intimacy with the Lord. Okay? So... Now, I, I mentioned this is a key to salvation. Here's some other scriptures, right? That was, uh, we're talking about Romans 11. That was talking about salvation. This is Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more now in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Hmm. This is Paul the Apostle. And like I've said before, and I say this jokingly, but it's kind of true. If Paul preached in today's churches, most of them would call him a heretic. <laughs> really, I could show you scriptures to tell you why, and this is one of them. And then the people who don't understand this try and rationalize this away. That's a fun thing to try and do that. Isaiah 33, 6, talking about salvation. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. You see that? Talking about salvation and wisdom and knowledge. Hebrews 4, 1. Another New Testament scripture. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, talking about heaven and eternity, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Like I said, having a full understanding of the fear of the Lord will keep you on the path of life. That's all these are saying. 
keep you firm in your salvation till the end. Um, this is Philippians 2.12 from the Amplified. I'll skip this. Uh, but if you have the Amplified Bible, it's just, it's, it gives a fuller... Uh, I just want to make sure I get every, through everything today. Um, so, and if you want the notes, like I said, email us. We'll send you the notes. If you're on our newsletter, we send them anyway. Okay, look at this. Again, trying to advertise the fear of the Lord and shift our perspective. And I've talked about this before. I want to say it again in this context. This is Isaiah 11, 1 to 3. This is talking about Jesus Christ. This is a prophetic, messianic, prophetic word about the Messiah and the Holy Spirit. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Talking about Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This this is the sevenfold Spirit of God now. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is a major facet of the Holy Spirit. Now look at this, verse 3. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus Christ, will he delighted in the fear of the Lord. And I've told you stories about this before. What does that look like? He's rejoicing. He's ha- this makes him happy to be in the fear of the Lord. He re- so we're, Jesus is our example, right? We're supposed to live like Jesus in this world. He delighted in the fear of the Lord, right? So we have to learn what it is to actually rejoice in the fear of the Lord, not reject it, not say no, 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 because we have a hard understanding, time understanding the love of God and the fear of God and reconciling that. It's not enough just to try and reconcile that. We have to learn how to delight in it. That's why I'm saying we, should, we have to learn how to shift our focus and have a positive understanding of what the fear of the Lord is so we can actually walk this out like Jesus did. My question is, because this seems so, like such a paradox, why did Jesus delight in the fear of the Lord? Right? That's a good question. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. But one of them that I already alluded to is that, the, and this is, the fear of the Lord helps us to go deeper in intimacy with God. And I'm going to show you scripturally to make this case why that's true. But like I said, even before I do that, one of the facets of God is the fear of the Lord, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so if that's a major facet of who God is, and a major facet of the Holy Spirit, unless we embrace it and understand it and try to, try to delight in it, we're going to miss a whole part of God's character and reject it. If you want to understand and be able to grow deeper in your relationship with God, it's essential to embrace the fear of the Lord. So here's a scripture, because this whole, I realize this whole uh, uh, message is paradoxical. I want to show you a scripture that's really interesting from Exodus 20. Now this, to give you the context, and most of us are probably at least vaguely familiar with it, this is actually right in the midst, right when Moses comes down and gives them the Ten Commandments. Those are the verses right before this. Look at what happens after this. So also, if you don't remember, God's manifest presence is on Mount Sinai. There's thunder and lightning and smoke, whatever. Okay? So that's what's going on right now. God's presence is manifest on Mount Sinai. Now all the people perceive the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the smoking mountain. And as they looked, they trembled with fear and fell back and stood afar off. Notice that response. Okay? They stood afar off. 
And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. But let not God speak to us lest we die. <laughs> That's how intense it was. They thought they were going to die if God spoke to them. Now look what Moses says. This is Exodus 20:20. 20, 20. This will give you 2020 20 vision. Okay, you can remember that. Moses said to the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you so that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. What a paradox. Fear not, so that the fear of the Lord will be in you. <laughs> right? You see that? It's like, how do you reconcile that? I'm going to try and explain this. So look at the response. And the people stood afar off, but Moses draw, drew near. You see the difference there? To the thick darkness where God was. So there's two responses to this. You either draw away and run away, or it causes you to draw near. So the question is, okay, so what is it? I have there, to fear or not to fear? Because Moses is like, fear not. Then he says, fear the Lord. So that, uh, yes. So the question is, how do we understand this paradox? And this is what I believe. He's differentiating between being scared or afraid of God and the fear of the Lord. There's a difference. In fact, a lot of translations like the NIV says, when Moses said, fear not, he says, don't be afraid, that the fear of the Lord may be in you. Okay, so people who are scared of God have something to hide and distance themselves from God. That's what the people did, right? They were scared of him. They had something to hide, so they stood afar off. This is another example. This is Adam. When he fell, he sinned. What did he do? He hid from God. Because he had something to hide. So it makes you, that response distances you from God when you're scared or afraid of him. Okay? The person who fears the Lord, on the other hand, has nothing to hide. They are scared to be away from God. You see the difference? They're scared to be away from God. Now, I wanted to say this because I, I, there's kind of a, a parallel here with the, there's a similar distinction between conviction and condemnation, okay? One draws you near to God, conviction. The other draws you away from God. So if you're feeling condemned, say you fall in sin and you're feeling condemned and Romans 8.1 says there's no longer any condemnation in Christ. What that does is it makes you draw away from God. You're like, oh, I'm so terrible. I don't even want to go to church. I don't belong there because I did this horrible thing. See, it, 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 condemnation. Conviction, on the other hand, when the whole, that's from the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the response is, oh, I want to be just like Jesus. So Lord, convict me so I can be more like you. And it actually draws you closer to God. You see the difference? It's a similar distinction between being scared and afraid of God, which makes you want to run away from his presence, versus the fear of the Lord, which Moses had, and it made him go draw nearer to the Lord. Okay? So that's how to reconcile that. Because we, we don't want to produce a people who are scared of God. That is negative fruit. Okay? And that's why it's important to make this distinction, because that's the last thing I'm saying. But if you can shift your understanding what the fear of the Lord is, 
you'll realize it's a key to going deeper in intimacy with the Lord. If you can get that revelation, then you'll embrace it and actually try and understand it. Okay, so that's the key point, is the fear of the Lord is not to be scared of God. Because God desires intimacy with us, and we know that, right? So how can you be intimate with someone you're scared of? You can't. So that's not what God's saying here. Exodus 20.20 makes that clear. There's a difference. Now, this is the key. The fear of God keeps you from sinning so that you can go in deeper intimacy with him. Right? That's God's heart. That's what, in Exodus 20 and 20, he said, so that the fear of Lord, the Lord would be in you so that you wouldn't sin. So that God's keeping you from sin so that you can enter his presence without that condemnation that the devil tries to put on you. Let me show you another verse. That, now, this is from Jeremiah. This is talking about, this is a prophetic word about the new covenant people. Showing you this, that the fear of the Lord, it's his heart to establish this so that we would grow closer to him. This is Jeremiah 32, 38 to 41. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will go well with them and their children after them. That's God's heart. He wants all to go well with us, right? So that's what he's saying. I'm going to put the fear of the Lord in them so that everything's going to go awesome for you and your children. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me. Talking about new covenant. So that they will never turn away from me. That's his heart. I will rejoice in doing good them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all of my heart and soul. You see the Lord's heart here. You see that the inspiration of the fear of the Lord is to get us to grow closer to him and so that we'll have a good life and so that we won't get off track and get into lawlessness that would separate us from the grace of Christ, right? You see that's his heart here. So if we can understand that, then we'll delight in the fear of the Lord. We won't try and rationalize it away. So the question then is, how do you maintain the fear of the Lord? It's a good question. And we've already talked about it a little bit, so I'm going to give you this verse again and try and uh, go deeper in this to show you how we actually live this in our lives practically. So again, 2 Corinthians 5.11, right? I already said this. We all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we're going to give an account whether we did, for whatever we did in our body, good or bad. So... So then what we, uh, uh, we know what it is to fear the Lord. You see how that produces the fear of the Lord? That's what he's saying. Okay, guys. Our goal is to please God, he says in verse 9. This is why we have to stand before God, give an account. Okay? Now, now that you're aware that you're going to give an account for everything you do, now that we know what it is to fear the Lord, because that's what produces it, And that's why in this series, you'll notice sometimes the fear of the Lord comes. And that's why. Because we're talking about eternity. Talking about forever and ever and ever. We're talking about eternal judgments. And I showed you in Ecclesiastes 11 that there's a connection too. He talks about the judgments of God and the fear of the Lord in the same context. So on judgment day, this is what's intense. Every motive, thought, word, and deed will be evaluated. And I'm going to show you scriptures on all of this. What we've done in secret will be made manifest at the light of his glory 
at the judgment. And I already read to you Luke 2. I'll read it again in a minute. Knowledge that you'll have to give an account keeps you in the fear of the Lord. Some of us are probably experiencing right now. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Knowing that everything we do in this life is going to be, we're going to have to give an account. Whoa, that's intense, right? It makes you live differently with that, you know, in your mind. On judgment day, you'll see how much of your life's works were done out of love for Jesus, according to his ways and for his kingdom, and how much of your life's works were motivated by your own protection, reputation, and selfish motives. Okay, so those who lose the fear of the Lord tend to think he doesn't see them in all they do. And you see this over and over again in the, New, in the Old Testament. In the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, they all contain examples of people who began to say, the Lord doesn't see me. You guys know what I'm talking about? I have an example here. You see that over and over. They lost the fear of the Lord because they thought God was like them and God didn't know what they're doing behind closed doors, but they, little did they know that he knew everything. So, for example, Ezekiel 8.12, he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness? Each of... Uh, at the shrine of his own idol, they say, the Lord doesn't see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. So this made them lose the fear of the Lord and continue in their sin, and that brought judgment. So if we lack the fear of God, we can be deceived that things are overlooked and take comfort in an unscriptural mercy that doesn't exist. And you see that a lot today. I have a lot of friends who could do that because it's like, Grace, 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 grace. Love wins. Grace, 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 grace. I can do whatever I want. I'm going to go do this and that and the other. And it doesn't matter because God loves me. Unscriptural mercy. And we talked about how intense what the repercussions of that could be. And so we don't want to go there. And that's what God's saying. My heart is that you don't do this. So I'm going to inspire you to fear me for that reason. So when you have the true fear of the Lord, you'll live with the continual awareness that nothing can be hidden from him, and that there is nothing secret that won't be known. If you live with that awareness, you live different. Because no matter what you're doing or thinking or whatever, God sees it. Totally transparent. That, that inspires you to fear the Lord and not think those and do those things, right? So this understanding makes you live totally different. Now, I already gave you the scripture, but with that in mind, look what Jesus is saying here. Luke 12, verse 2, there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said, talking about words now, in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. It's all going to be exposed one day on the judgment seat of Christ. Then he says this, I tell you, right? Don't be afraid of those who kill the body and have to do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after you've uh, been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, because, because of this reality. Everything you've thought, everything you've done is going to be disclosed, and God has the authority, in light of all that, to make these judgments. Fear him. So, something to consider, and I've, I've said this, but I want to show you quickly, and we're going to go in more detail this in the future, talking about believers now, but the key point is on judgment day, every motive, thought, and word, and deed will be evaluated. I'll just give you a couple of scriptures showing all these things. So, we'll not only be judged for everything we did, which is really clear, I could talk about that a whole day, our works, but every word. So, this includes evil, good, and even careless words, even careless words that we don't even think about. 
So this scripture from Matthew 12, 33 to 37 says this. This is talking about our words on judgment day. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So when you're saying something, it actually gives you revelation of what's in your heart. You say something weird, it's a good opportunity for you to examine yourself. When I say weird, you fill in the blanks, right? About someone, about yourself, whatever. Shows you what's in your heart. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone, everyone, will have to give an account on the day of judgment, we're talking about judgment day, for every empty word they've spoken. Other translations say careless word. Others say idle word. Careless, idle, empty. Even the things we don't think matter is what I'm saying. Careless. That's, in this context, is the Pharisees blaspheming the Holy Spirit and saying what Jesus was doing was of the devil, just to give you context. Now look at this, verse 37. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned on judgment day. Words matter a lot, and we're going to be judged on them. Okay, not only are our words and works examined, but the motives and intentions behind them as well, which is really intense and crystal clear in the Sermon on the Mount, but I'll give you some other scriptures anyway. People will also be judged on the thoughts they embraced. It's all going to get exposed. So look at this, Hebrew 4, 12 to 13, thoughts and attitudes of the heart on judgment day. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who we must give an account on judgment day. You see that? Everything. It's all, he makes it clear. Even the thoughts and attitudes of your heart, it's all going to be uh, judged. Here's some other scriptures. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct. You see the connection there, too, to their work, to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Now, what's interesting is the NLT, it says, and examine secret motives. I like that. Jeremiah eleven twenty, but you, Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, right? You see this in both the Old and New Testament. In fact, I'll show you another New Testament verse here, which is kind of intense. This is Jesus talking now to a church. He's talking to believers. And I will strike her children, her proper followers, dead, through thoroughly exterminating them. And all the assemblies, churches, shall recognize and understand that I am he who searches minds, the thoughts, feelings, and purposes, and the inmost hearts, and I'll give to each of you the reward for what you've done as your works deserve. Now, this shouldn't be surprising to us because what's the greatest commandment? <laughs> Jesus summarizes everything in like a sentence in the New Testament, which I love. Okay? So someone asked him, what's the greatest commandment? Here's Jesus' response. Love the, this is Mark 12, 30 31. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all your strength, your body. 
The second is this, love your neighbors yourself. There's no commandment greater than this. Remember I talked about Bob Jones' experience when you went, he went to heaven and the only thing the Lord asked everybody is, did you learn to love? Did you learn to love on all of these points? Heart, soul, mind, strength. So if, this is pretty clear if you think about it logically that these things were going to be judged on. Did we learn to love in all these areas? Now, I have good news because I see that a lot of us are ah, scared. Oh, my goodness. Good news. <laughs> there is grace to help us. There is so much grace to help us, it's not even funny. It makes, makes me want to rejoice. Okay? So don't worry. I mean, fear the Lord's good. I'm just saying there's something we can do about this. Is we're not hopeless. We, in fact, we're full of hope and joy because God gives us that hope by the Holy Spirit. I just want to show you some promises and some scriptures we can bank off of if the Lord's convicting us right now. I'm sure he's convicting some of us. How to get it back on track. How to, how to stand firm in our faith so that when we, we can, the scripture says, be confident and not ashamed when he comes. Okay? So this is Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. For the, I, I gave you this, and I want to show you what he says right after this. So keep that in mind. I'm just going to read this and show you something contextually. Okay, remember this. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes, or the eyes of him whom we have to give an account. Right? So that's verse 13. Okay? Look what he says right after. This is verse 14. It's wrong up there. I should say uh, Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. Therefore, right after he says, the judge, God sees everything. We're going to have to give an account for our thoughts and attitudes. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that awesome? We, I love other versions say, go to the throne of grace with boldness. Go boldly to the throne of grace. Because through Christ, through his redemption, through his blood, we, we can go to the throne of grace whenever. And this is what his exhortation is. If you're being tempted, if you're falling into sin, look what you do. You go to God's throne room and say, God, I need mercy and I need grace to help me right now in my time of need with these thoughts and attitudes or whatever. That's what he's saying, right? Therefore, that's what you do. So whenever we're being tempted, whenever we're struggling, whenever we've fallen, God says, don't stand afar off like the Israelites did in Exodus 20, 20. Be like Moses and go boldly to the dark cloud of my glory and get some grace and mercy because you need it. One thing I wanted to point out, and the reason I have that underline is, notice it says, find grace. The grace is what helps us. There's a misconception unfortunately, that's prevalent, that grace, there's a misconception about grace. Now, in all fairness, Paul talks about grace in different ways. And I think that creates confusion. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he refers to money as grace. 
Okay, so it's wrong of us to box grace into this is what it means. But I want to tell you something. One way that the Bible talks about grace more often than not is an empowerment to do what God demands of us. It's an empowerment. It's not, you know, you hear the thing, this is totally not scriptural. Grace covers our sins. Where? In the Bible. No. Grace empowers you so you don't fall into sin. That's what this is saying. To find that grace to empower you so that you don't do this. It's an empowerment to do the Sermon on the Mount. It's an empowerment. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, where he says, Jesus, Paul wants the thorn of the flesh to be taken away, and the Lord says, no, actually, it's in your weakness, it says, my power is perfected. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Notice the connection between grace and power. Right? Paul's weak. God says, my grace is sufficient. My power, talking about grace, is perfected in your weakness. So then Paul says, I glory in my weaknesses for this reason. It's an empowerment. And I'm going to show you some scriptures on this. Look at Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and fear, for God is a consuming fire. I just kept that in because it's awesome. What's this saying? Grace empowers us to notice, serve God acceptably. It's an empowerment to do that with the fear of the Lord. Notice he says that, right? Have grace by which, that grace, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So grace actually gives us the fear of the Lord. It's God's grace. It's a good thing. Look at 2 Peter 1, 2-4. This is one of my personal favorites. I love this. He starts off by praying and declaring, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice this, verse 3. His divine power, talking about grace, has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, through these he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You see that? God gives us power to live a godly lifestyle according to the divine nature he's given us in Christ by grace. There's times, this is only one of them, where Peter actually prays that grace, more grace be given to you. It's not wrong to pray for more grace. Why? Because it's the grace that empowers you to live godly. That's what all these verses are saying. To live acceptably before God. Here's another one. Titus 2, 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, the grace, this is interesting. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Notice that. that. It's grace that teaches us that. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we wait for Judgment Day, grace teaches us to live this way. Who gave himself up to, uh, for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what's good. These then are the things you should teach, Titus, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. Because you're telling them, you're rebuking them and telling them to live right like this, right? 
My point is, grace teaches us to do this. Grace empowers us to live acceptably. Grace gives us the power to live a godly lifestyle. Grace gives us the power to live in the fear of the Lord. Thank God for his grace. What should we do in light of this then? Because I'm talking about the fear of the Lord. I'm talking about, okay, we've experienced the fear of the Lord, and we're talking about eternal judgment and punishment. Now we're shifting, going to eternal judgment for believers. We're still, even though we're talking about heaven, going to experience this. I get, I get probably, I shouldn't say I guarantee you, we probably will. But it's a good thing, right? It's good. If we embrace it, it empowers us to live right before God so we can be confident on judgment day. And that's what my heart is for all of us. My heart is, man, I want all of us to be so confident before the Lord where he says, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Come and enter my, your master's happiness for eternity because you live so well. I don't want to lie to you and say, grace, 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 cover sin, cover sin, love wins, because we all have to give an account, you know, and, and I could lie to you and get an amen, hallelujah, rejoicing, just only speaking positive, 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 positive. Let's ignore the uncomfortable stuff, positive, positive. I have to give an account to God one day, personally, and I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to give you scriptures. All I'm doing is giving you scriptures. You can argue all you want with me. Argue with God because these are all scriptures I'm giving you, right? And that's why I always give you a ton because just to show you, this is not just an isolated scripture Right? To bank your whole, like so many people bank their whole eternity off of isolated scriptures that are taken out of context and give them a false sense of security. God will never leave you or forsake you is one of them. He's talking about money there in Hebrews 13. He's not talking about eternal security before the Lord, which is a verse people use for that. Just look at the context. All I'm saying, it's not right to take an isolated scripture and say, and then, and then, okay, when I stand before God one day, I'm going to bank on this one scripture that some preacher told me one day gives me eternal security. When I've, I keep giving you scripture after scripture after scripture, right, from both Old and New Testament, from different books, different New Testament writers, to give you a more full right, understanding of these principles, because they're all over the Bible, and that's why we're spending so much time on this, for confidence before the Lord one day, okay? So what should we do in light of all this? I love this, uh, it's a good scripture for us, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one. for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged, Paul's rebuking them for a lot of error they're doing while they're taking communion, getting drunk, <laughs> letting people get eating and, and, and other people are going hungry. And he said, because of this, people in your midst are getting sick and they're dying. If you want to prevent this, judge yourself so that this won't happen. Just say, God, look, um, is getting drunk appropriate during communion? No, no, my son. Okay, good. Now I'm not going to have to get judged by you. Verse 32, but when we are judged, this is God's mercy. I love the, see, if we have shift our perspective on the judgments of God, it's awesome. It says this in Hebrews 12 too, that God's discipline, he disciplines those he loves so that we will have confidence with him on judgment day. It's out of his love. This is all out of God's love. Okay, so, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord 
that we may not be condemned with the world. We believers, so that we're not condemned with the world. Okay, my point is judgment is from God is good. We should embrace it. But secondly, God's saying, hey, if you just judge yourself, you could avoid that whole thing. <laughs> and life will go pretty good for you, right? So here's an exhortation. This is from second, or 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Okay? God's decisions on judgment day are eternal. Try and fathom forever. It's God's will and his heart that we know this in advance and that we labor for the rewards, which I'm going to be talking about a lot now that we're talking about believers. Look at what Paul says. This is out of the Amplified. Do you not know, this is, yeah, I already said the verse. Do you not know that in a race all runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run your race that you may lay a hold of the prize and make it yours. Now, every athlete who goes into training conducts himself temperately and restricts himself in all things that they do it to win a wreath that will soon wither, talking about the temporal. And Paul's saying, no, we do it to receive a crown of eternal blessedness forever. That's how we want you to live. That cannot wither. Therefore, I do not run uncertainly without definite aim. I do not box like one beating the air and striking without an adversary. But like a boxer, I buffet my body, handle it roughly, discipline it by hardships, and subdue it for fear, talking about the fear of the Lord, for fear that after proclaiming to others the gospel and things pertaining to it, I myself should become unfit, not stand to test, be unapproved and rejected as a counterfeit. Paul the apostle is saying this. Lest I, after proclaiming the gospel, would be unfit before the Lord one day. So I don't live my life randomly, like, right? I'm, he's saying, I have definite aim. I have definite purpose with this in mind, right? It's not in vain. We are, we are running a race to win an eternal reward, blessed hope, okay? So it's not in vain. What, what's unfortunate is in our culture, because of this, a lot of the teachings, it's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'll just not think about any of this ever and just hope it all pans out in the end. Right? That is dangerous thinking. Right? It should be, sometimes revisit, how am I doing? Judge yourself lest you be judged. Right? How am I doing, Lord? Test my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wickedness in me. What uh, David prayed in Psalm 139. That should be our heart, right? Asking God to examine us, show us, so we could stay on the path of life. Here's another one. You notice Paul talks about running a race a lot. Hebrews 12, 11, or, or Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Us, this is, as I'm saying, wish we didn't like this. Looking at the life of Jesus, he didn't, like I was saying with Paul, just bounce around life aimlessly. He did what the Father told him every moment of his life with definite aim. 
And for the joy set before him, I'm talking about eternity now, right? That's what helped him get through this, is what it's saying. And that's what we should do. Thinking of eternity, having that before us at all times, not just never thinking about it, is how you endure this stuff. It's how you overcome temptation. It's how you live and don't lose heart, is what it says at the end, and grow weary. Okay, so give you some practical prayers, if you would like. And I've given, I gave you this a few weeks ago. I didn't have time to talk about it, but I want to give you some, some, I love praying the scripture and I love the apostolic prayers because it gives us a glimpse of how Paul prayed and God liked them so much, he decided to canonize them in scripture forever. Okay, so these, you'll notice what's interesting is Paul prays once in a while in the scripture, often he prays that they would be blameless on the day of Christ. This was something he continually prayed for different churches. I'm going to show you some of them. But before I do, I want, to pr- I want to show you this prayer. And I've talked about this before, but I love this prayer. It's one of my favorite. Okay, Paul's praying continually for the church of uh, the Colossians church. Okay, He said, we haven't stopped praying for you. We continually, this is Colossians 1, 9 through 14. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that his spirit gives so that this is why I continually pray that you know God's will and you live in it. So that, verse 10, you may first live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Number three, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God in intimacy, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience like Jesus did, right? We talked about how Jesus persevered. He's saying this, this is the fruit. These five or six things are the fruit of you knowing God's will and living it out. And that's how critical it is for you to know God's will. So that this will happen, you'll have great endurance and patience and stand before the Lord one day with complete confidence because all of this happened by living his will. You see that? I want to show you four shorter uh, apostolic prayers to show you Paul. This was on Paul's mind a lot for his beloved churches that he planted. Okay? This isn't something that he just like never thought about. So Philippians 1, 9, 11. This is a prayer for the church of Philippi. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see that? The judgment seat of Christ. This is my prayer for you so that you'd be pure and blameless on that day. I'm praying this for you. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as other, ours does for you. Verse 13. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. Why does Paul pray this? Once saved, always saved. It's all by grace. Why would he bother wasting his time praying this, that they'd be blameless on the day of Christ if it was in vain? If you think about it, right? Why would he pray it unless there was a chance that they wouldn't have confidence on the day of Christ and be blameless? That's why, because his heart was that they would be confident in his presence when they met him. 
1 Thessalonians 5.23-24, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he'll do it. 1 Corinthians 1.8, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see these promises Now, why am I giving this to you? If Paul prayed this continually for the beloved churches that he oversaw, why not take these prayers and pray them for our beloved friends and family and ourselves if the Lord leads? Why not? Lord, keep me blameless on the day so I can be confident in the day of Christ. Whatever. Okay, so that's why I'm I'm showing you this. There's something we can do about it. That's why I said good news. Grace empowers you to live this way, Right? coming before the Lord with confidence, saying, God, I believe you're going to help me with this, that you're going to keep me and stand firm, so I stand firm to the end and be blameless in your presence on that day. My thoughts, my motives, my words, my intentions, whatever. Last but not least, I love this doxology in Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless on judgment day, Before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. God's able to keep us from stumbling. God's able to keep us from stumbling. He's able to keep us pure. He's able to give us grace so that we can stand before him with confidence and exceeding joy on that day. And that's what we all want. So I just want to pray over us. And I hope today, like I said, my point, my, this is a transition message into we're going to be talking about heaven, going to be talking about the judgment of the believers and all that. We're leaving behind some of the more in, other intense stuff. But I want you to leave here knowing that, first of all, God can give you grace to so you stand before him with confidence. But secondly, that the fear of the Lord is a good thing and that we should seek to not only understand, but to have that as an experiential revelation because that's a part of who God is, okay? So I just want to whoa, pray for us. Lord, we just thank you so much for your grace that empowers us to live a godly life. God, I thank you that you say in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that no matter how many promises you've made, they're all yes in Christ. And so through us, the amen is spoken to the glory of God. So we just say amen to all of these promises. Lord, I just ask, as Paul did, that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we may be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ. That we would all be filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of you. And Lord, I just ask that you make our love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. And that you would strengthen our hearts so that we would all be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with all his holy ones. And may you, the God of peace, sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You who calls us is faithful, and we thank you that you will do it. And we thank you that you will keep us firm to the end. We thank you that we'll be blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. 
Now to you who is able to keep us all from stumbling and to present us faultless before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Whoa. Amen. So, as always, we love to give you an opportunity to uh, receive prayer for anything, whether it's something pertaining to this message or not. But also, I'd like to give you the opportunity just to chill out, sit there if you'd like, and let the Lord examine you if you're feeling convicted at all. That's awesome, right? The Holy Spirit does that out of mercy so that we can course correct if there's something needed, right, and and stay on the path of life. And so, you know, if you want to take that opportunity too, awesome. Or if you'd like to just hang out and talk and drink some coffee, we'll have that in the great room with snacks and all that stuff. That's awesome, too. So whatever you are, if you want to go home, we bless that as well, and we hope you have an awesome week. So um, with all of those different options, I just uh, pray that you guys do have an awesome week and hope that you all leave here with abundance of joy. <laughs> In Jesus' name, amen. have prayer up here as we usually do and we also have fellowship so we haven't had fellowship for a while we just kind of started it last week so now we're going to be trying to do it every week so it's going to be a great time for us to hang out and stuff but if you guys would like we'd love to pray for you here or you can head over and have snacks and coffee and tea and just hang out and get to know people so yeah yeah so ministry team yeah thank you